Welcome to Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. This is a very special mini episode in which we will explore a rare and spectacular vision of Carl Jung. If you are unfamiliar with Jung, he was one of the founders of analytical psychology in the early 1900s. And as we explored in episodes 11 and 12 of this podcast, he also had an incredibly creative mind. And much of that is seen in the writings and the art of his Red Book. The vision we will be exploring today is rare and spectacular. I call it rare because no one speaks about it. And I mean no one. I've listened to and read countless commentaries from Jungian scholars and writers, and it seems this one particular vision no one wants to touch. Perhaps it's too personal, or perhaps it's too mystical. But I think we do Jung and ourselves a disservice by avoiding such things. When I was working on episodes 11 and 12 of this show, which are all about Carl Jung's Red Book, check those out, there was one vision I stumbled on that was so provocative and startling that I had to leave it out. As striking as it is, I left it out because it occurs when Jung is 68, roughly 30 years after the Red Book. And so we are faced with something entirely different and yet equally profound, Carl Jung's near-death experience. Now, this is no symbolic active imagination session. This is the experience that Jung describes having when he nearly dies in the hospital in 1944. I stumbled on this passage deep in the book Memories, Dreams, Reflections, chapter 10, which is appropriately titled Visions. Because the material is so startling, I will be reading from the text with no interruptions. Now a quick side note on some terms Jung uses. You'll hear him mention the French phrase, fait accompli, which means events that have already happened and cannot be undone. You will also hear the term basilius, B-A-S-I-L-E-U-S, which is a term from ancient Greece meaning emperor or king. And lastly, you will also hear a locale mentioned called Kos, K-O-S, which is a Greek island in the Aegean Sea. It was famous in antiquity for having the temple of Asclepius, and it was the birthplace of Hippocrates. This is Carl Jung's near-death experience. Let's begin. At the beginning of 1944, I broke my foot, and this misadventure was followed by a heart attack. In a state of unconsciousness, I experienced deliriums and visions which must have begun when I hung on the edge of death and was being given oxygen and camphor injections. The images were so tremendous that 
I myself concluded that I was close to death. My nurse afterward told me, it was as if you were surrounded by a bright glow. That was a phenomenon she had sometimes observed in the dying, she added. I had reached the outermost limit and do not know whether I was in a dream or in ecstasy. At any rate, extremely strange things began to happen to me. It seemed to me that I was high up in space. Far below, I saw the globe of the earth bathed in a gloriously blue light. I saw the deep blue sea and the continents. Far below my feet lay Ceylon. And in the distance ahead of me, the subcontinent of India. My field of vision did not include the whole earth, but its global shape was plainly distinguishable and its outlines shone with a silvery gleam through that wonderful blue light. In many places, the globe seemed colored or spotted green like oxidized silver. Far away to the left lay a broad expanse, the reddish-yellow desert of Arabia, and it was as though the silver of the earth had there assumed a reddish-gold hue. Then came the Red Sea, and far, far back, as if in the upper left of a map, I could just make out a bit of the Mediterranean. My gaze was directed chiefly toward that. Everything else appeared indistinct. I could also see the snow-covered Himalayas, but in that direction it was foggy or cloudy. I did not look to the right at all. I knew that I was on the point of departing from the earth. Later, I discovered how high in space one would have to be to have so extensive a view, approximately a thousand miles. The sight of the earth from this height was the most glorious thing I had ever seen. After contemplating it for a while, I turned around. I had been standing with my back to the Indian Ocean, as it were, and my face to the north. Then it seemed to me that I made a turn to the south. Something new entered my field of vision. A short distance away, I saw in space a tremendous dark block of stone, like a meteorite. It was about the size of my house, or even bigger. It was floating in space, and I myself was floating in space. I had seen similar stones on the coast of the Gulf of Bengal. They were blocks of tawny granite, and some of them had been hollowed out into temples. My stone was one such gigantic dark block. An entrance led into a small antechamber. To the right of the entrance, a black Hindu sat silently in lotus posture upon a stone bench. He wore a white gown, and I knew that he expected me. Two steps led up to this antechamber, and inside, on the left, was the gate to the temple. Innumerable tiny niches, each with a saucer-like concavity filled with coconut oil and small burning wicks, 
surrounded the door with a wreath of bright flames. As I approached the steps leading up to the entrance into the rock, a strange thing happened. I had the feeling that everything was being slewed away, everything I aimed at or wished for or thought. The whole phantasmagoria of earthly existence fell away or was stripped from me, an extremely painful process. Nevertheless, something remained. It was as if I now carried along with me everything I had ever experienced or done, everything that had happened around me. I might also say, it was with me and I was it. I consisted of all that, so to speak. I consisted of my own history, and I felt with great certainty, this is what I am. I am this bundle of what has been and what has been accomplished. This experience gave me a feeling of extreme poverty, but at the same time, of great fullness. There was no longer anything I wanted or desired. I existed in an objective form. I was what I had been and lived. At first, the sense of annihilation predominated, of having been stripped or pillaged, but suddenly, that became of no consequence. Everything seemed to be past. What remained was a fait accompli, without any reference back to what had been. There was no longer any regret that something had dropped away or been taken away. On the contrary, I had everything that I was, and that was everything. Something else engaged my attention. As I approached the temple, I had the certainty that I was about to enter an illuminated room and would meet there all those people to whom I belong in reality. There I would at last understand this too was a certainty, what historical nexus I or my life fitted into. I would know what had been before me, why I had come into being, and where my life was flowing. My life as I lived it had often seemed to me like a story that has no beginning and no end. I had the feeling that I was a historical fragment and excerpt for which the preceding and succeeding text was missing. My life seemed to have been snipped out of a long chain of events and many questions had remained unanswered. Why had it taken this course? Why had I brought these peculiar assumptions with me? What had I made of them? What will follow? I felt sure that I would receive an answer to all these questions as soon as I entered the rock temple. There I would learn everything had been thus and not otherwise. There I would meet the people who knew the answer to my question about what had been before and what would come after. While I was thinking over these matters, something happened that caught my attention. From below, from the direction of Europe, an image floated up. It was my doctor, Dr. H, or rather, 
his likeness, framed by a golden chain or a golden laurel wreath. I knew at once, aha, this is my doctor, of course, the one who has been treating me. But now he is coming in this primal form, as a Basilius, of course. In life he was an avatar of this Basilius, the temporal embodiment of the primal form, which has existed from the beginning. Now he is appearing in that primal form. Presumably, I too was in my primal form, though this was something I did not observe, but simply took for granted. As he stood before me, a mute exchange of thought took place between us. Dr. H had been delegated by the earth to deliver a message to me, to tell me that there was a protest against my going away. I had no right to leave the earth and must return. The moment I heard that, the vision ceased. I was profoundly disappointed, for now it all seemed to have been for nothing. The painful process of defoliation had been in vain, and I was not to be allowed to enter the temple to join the people in whose company I belonged. In reality, a good three weeks were still to pass before I could truly make up my mind to live again. I could not eat because all food repelled me. The view of city and mountains from my sickbed seemed to me like a painted curtain with black holes in it, or a tattered sheet of newspaper full of photographs that meant nothing. Disappointed, I thought, now I must return to the box system again, for it seemed to me as if behind the horizon of the cosmos a three-dimensional world had been artificially built up in which each person sat by himself in a little box, and now I should have to convince myself all over again that this was important. Life and the whole world struck me as a prison, and it bothered me beyond measure that I should again be finding all that quite in order. I had been so glad to shed it all, and now it had come about that I, along with everyone else, would again be hung up in a box by a thread. While I floated in space, I had been weightless, and there had been nothing tugging at me, and now all that was to be a thing of the past. I felt violent resistance to my doctor because he had brought me back to life. At the same time, I was worried about him. His life is in danger for heaven's sake. He has appeared to me in his primal form. When anybody attains this form, it means he is going to die, for already he belongs to the greater company. Suddenly, the terrifying thought came to me that Dr. H would have to die in my stead. I tried my best to talk to him about it, but he did not understand me. Then I became angry with him. Why does he always pretend he doesn't know he is a Basilius, of course? 
and that he has already assumed his primal form, he wants to make me believe that he doesn't know. That irritated me. My wife reproved me for being so unfriendly to him. She was right. But at the time, I was angry with him for stubbornly refusing to speak of all that had passed between us in my vision. Damn it all, he ought to watch his step. He has no right to be so reckless. I want to tell him to take care of himself. I was firmly convinced that his life was in jeopardy. In actual fact, I was his last patient. On April 4th, 1944, I was allowed to sit up on the edge of my bed for the first time since the beginning of my illness. And on this day, Dr. H took to his bed and did not leave it again. I heard that he was having intermittent attacks of fever. Soon afterward, he died of septicemia. He was a good doctor. There was something of the genius about him. Otherwise, he would not have appeared to me as a prince, of course. During those weeks, I lived in a strange rhythm. By day, I was usually depressed. I felt weak and wretched and scarcely dared to stir. Gloomily, I thought, now I must go back to this drab world. Toward evening, I would fall asleep, and my sleep would last until about midnight. Then I would come to myself and lie awake for about an hour, but in an utterly transformed state. It was as if I were in an ecstasy. I felt as though I were floating in space, as though I were safe in the womb of the universe, in a tremendous void, but filled with the highest possible feeling of happiness. This is eternal bliss, I thought. This cannot be described. It is far too wonderful. And that is Carl Jung's near-death experience. As he describes in the book, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, in chapter 10. What a mind-blowing vision. And there's even more to it that we didn't cover here. Jung goes into further detail about the days that followed during his recovery in the hospital. And I really encourage you to read that. It's important to point out at this time, Jung was 68 years old. This was in 1944. And he would still live 17 more years on this earth. So the message given to him by the primal form of his doctor was right. He still had more work to do down here. Speaking of which, that part about Jung trying to warn his doctor of his own imminent death is simply unexplainable. Perhaps that's why Jungian writers don't even touch this vision. If you question it too long, you inevitably 
risk accusing Jung of being a liar. Or you end up inadvertently leaving the realm of psychology and you enter into metaphysics or spirituality. But I also don't think it's that simple. Every culture in the world describes similar occurrences around the death process. Clinical research has been done on near-death experiences, even as recently as the last few years and are still being done, and the results, they seem to confirm that this phenomena exists. And very often, people report the same vividness, emotions, and profound aspects that Carl Jung describes. For example, look up the article, Near-Death Experiences in Survivors of Cardiac Arrest, a prospective study in the Netherlands. This is a study done by a cardiologist named Dr. Pern van Lommel, L-O-M-M-E-L. The researchers studied 344 patients who were successfully resuscitated after experiencing being clinically dead, meaning no breathing or heartbeat. After being resuscitated, 18% of those patients described a near-death experience. And in those experiences, common elements were shared among these patients, including an awareness of being dead, feeling positive emotions, no reports of a fearful experience, perceiving the hospital room from outside of their body, also perceptions of moving through a tunnel, meeting with deceased persons, and observation of a celestial landscape. In the literature on this phenomena, uh, these are all textbook characteristics which seem to be universal across cultures. One of the reasons I personally began to be fascinated by near-death experiences is because my grandfather once described to me his own profound experience. Now, I won't go into full details here, but he was in the hospital with lung cancer, and when his heart stopped, he vividly saw himself above the nurses and the doctor uh, who were rushing into his bedside. He felt free of pain. He also had a profound interaction with someone personal to him during this floating period who told him it was not yet time to go. And when he returned to his body, he felt that heaviness and pain return. This memory of my grandfather telling me this in even greater detail, it came clearly into my mind when I was first reading Jung's experience. And Jung communicates it with his trademark candor, such as in the moment he expresses regret at having to return to his body. That following the freedom and weightless expanse of space, he should have to return to this box life, as he calls it. And I'm curious about this turn of phrase too. Why did human life appear to him as a symbolic box? He says, now I must return to the box system again, for it seemed to me as if behind the horizon of the cosmos, a three-dimensional world had been 
artificially built up in which each person sat by himself in a little box." Unquote. One way you could interpret this is that he means our homes and the rooms and the buildings we inhabit are these boxes that Jung regretfully sees. But that seems too literal. He calls it a box system. The meaning he is implying feels more metaphysical or philosophical. I think a more satisfactory answer is found in the art and philosophy of Western esoteric traditions, such as Hermeticism and alchemy. We know without a shadow of a doubt that Jung was especially familiar with alchemy, its art and traditions. In these Western esoteric traditions, there is a representation of the spiritual plane as a triangle and the material plane as the shape of a cube. Or in this case, Jung calls it a box. For example, do a Google search of Jacob Bohm. That's J-A-K-O-B, last name B-O-H-M-E. And include the term hermetic astrology in the search. And the artwork you'll see is from the 16th century by this mystic philosopher, Jacob Bohm. And notice this detail in the artwork. You'll see a triangle on the top half of the image, just above a set of circles at the center, and a cube on the bottom beneath them. In Western esoteric philosophy, the cube is this material plane. Kind of odd, huh? That Jung also refers to our material world this way. I have no doubt he would have crossed paths with this concept in his studies of these traditions, but still, we can't rule out the possibility the insight itself was something Jung perceived metaphysically. I hope you found all of this thought-provoking. I certainly have. And although this mini-sode, as it were, wasn't about creativity, I do think it explored something valuable. I haven't seen any Jungian writers or lecturers explore this particular vision, so I thought it was my responsibility to present it to a wider public. I see that as one of the responsibilities of Creative Codex. If you enjoyed this episode, I have a small favor to ask you. Please share it. Please share it with someone you know who you think will enjoy it. That can be a friend, a relative, a colleague, anyone who you think will dig it. We are a small show that explores big ideas. And I have big hopes for this thing, but I can't get there without your help. Compared to all of these other big name podcasts with their corporate funding and sponsor interruptions, Creative Codex is an underdog. But even so, I often hear listeners tell me this podcast's production quality far exceeds many of these other mainstream shows. That means a lot. For example, I composed and recorded all of the music in this episode, as well as the other episodes. 
Side note, I am a composer, so it does serve as a creative outlet for me. But just as importantly, I feel that by going that extra step, the music helps to engage your emotions and your imagination while listening. Crafting a meaningful listener experience is my goal with each of these episodes. So please share it and we will all watch this little flower grow. If you would like to become a patron of the show and obtain access to all of our creativity tip episodes, please head over to my Patreon page, which is at www.patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. There you will find exclusive patron-only content at tier levels that start as low as $1 and go up to $100. Thank you for your support. Shoutouts to Kenneth, Sam, Chris with a K, you guys rock. Also to Logan, Michael S., Timothy, Jay Booth, I see you, Blake, Aaron, Zuko's World, Adheel, Kristen, DVM, Owen, Anudi, and Jay Stacks. I appreciate you all. Big hugs. Our next episode will be a return to the long-form narrative format with the enigma that is Emily Dickinson. This has been Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. Until next time, dig deep, my friends. <laughs>